Hello and welcome to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. I'm your host Amiya, speaking from Delhi, India. Each week, insiders from our community share what news matters more in their communities and how they build stories out of the local context. We're heading over to Mexico for this next story, where our Latin America editor, Melissa, uh, is going to tell us about an interesting situation around water and water rights uh, in the state of uh, Querétaro in Mexico. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amaya. So nice to be here. Okay, so Melissa, where are you joining us from? Uh, right now, I'm in Brussels. Alrighty. Okay, so uh, we have a story out this week uh, that talks about the the how uh, Querétaro is dealing with the, the drought and the climate crisis and all these problems in Mexico. So will you quickly tell me what the problem actually is that the state is facing? Yes, I mean, even further than the state, the whole country of Mexico is, um, well, the whole country, a large part of the country uh, are facing is facing droughts, sometimes severe droughts, and Querétaro, which is at the, the cent- central Mexico, is not an exception, uh, but rather most of, I think, two-thirds of the country are in a drought right now, and big parts of it are in severe drought, and water supplies are running low, so there's a lot of tension around water supplies right now, and Querétaro. Um, and there's a lot of discussion throughout Latin America, uh, and so in this case, Mexico, on what to do with um, water processing and who will bill it, um, who who will sell it, um, especially considering that um, a lot of people do not have faith in public institutions of efficiency and, corru- and corruption. And so... There a, a, a way that a lot of uh, regions are, are doing it and get it that it was not exception is to um, contract the water to private um, companies. And so, I mean, from the time we wrote the article and a few days later, actually, they, the, the, the parliament and, and get it that approved um, uh, two regulations that um, allow and permit officially permits this uh, outsourcing of uh, water processes to private companies. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the private companies get to, well, I guess, quote unquote, mine or store or collect the water and then they have to distribute it? Yes, and they bill. And they bill. Um, so they're the ones who collect the money as well. Uh, for water supplies. And so that's what a lot of people fear, that there's no um, oversight on pricing either. Okay, uh, so there'll be no oversight on pricing, but what about how they get the water and how they treat the water and quality control and things like that? I do th- um, I, I do think that they would be the ones in charge of that, but um, they're probably in coordination with um, public um sources but i'm not really sure how that specifically works out and get it that um yeah so what happened how did how did people receive this were they i mean our story is obviously talking about how there was a lot of debate around it so what what some of the kind of reactions and responses that came out of there so a lot of um water defender well they call it water defenders like water activist organizations really sprung up to stop um these legislations to pass and get it that all um uh there were protests on street as well and a lot of twitter storms so um 
and I think we're one of the only um, media who reported this on an international level because um, the organizations used our story a lot to to tag these officials and you know telling them hey like they're talking about us in international media what are you doing um so they, they used our story uh, for that um so that was that was interesting as well um and yeah what can you tell me about the escazu agreement so it's the first legally binding agreement um, regarding the participation of peoples in governmental decisions regarding the environment. Okay. And Mexico um, ratified it. Okay. So what does it mean then? Does it mean that the government of uh, Querétaro has to, has to open? It could be a legal way uh, for governments to, for government, sorry, for organization, it could be a legal way for organizations to to sue the, go the government, I believe. However, this CASU agreement is still in its infancy. It's very recent. It's been adopted like a year ago. And so um, organizations are really pushing forward, you know, for it to be implemented throughout the countries in Latin America, but it does hold a lot of promise for this kinds of of legislations in the future because this Casual Agreement would oblige uh, these parliaments of countries that ratified it to consult people with regards to environmental issues. That's actually quite a big uh, uh, tool for, for environmental defenders and indigenous peoples the world, I mean, in those countries, I would imagine very much so. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens here and how this whole thing pans out. Thanks for taking the time, Melissa. Thank you so much, Amaya. I'm joined by Kevin Rennie, frequent TV contributor in Australia. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So, Kevin, where are you right now? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. All right, then. So, Australia has had some exciting events over the past few days. Um, with the Labour Party winning the election after I'm, I'm told about a decade. So uh, could you give us a little context about why this is a big deal? Well, after nine years of uh, Conservative government, there have been a number of major changes in this election. The Labour Party has close to a majority of seats. They're still counting because of our preferential system and postal votes. So we don't know yet whether Labor has got an absolute majority or they'll have to rely on um, minor parties or independents. But uh, it's been quite a change. But there have been other changes apart from Labor. Labor, in the voters at this stage, is actually lower at this election than last election. But um, with our compulsory voting and preferential system, um, then candidates have to get 50%. And the, uh, the votes of the smaller parties or candidates are counted, uh, their, their preferences until a candidate reaches that. So Labor has over 50% of what we call a two-party preferred, yet only has one, about one-third of the, the national vote. I'm just going to step in to explain this. Voting in Australia is actually compulsory 
and if uh, people are not able to give a really good reason i don't know um, for example that they were ill uh, for not voting they can be fined up to as much as 170 dollars the other thing that australia does is they use preferential voting which is a system where you don't just pick the candidate you want the most but you actually have to rank all the available candidates uh from like one to whatever and that is factored into the voting so in actual fact someone may have a lot of uh, first place votes but um somebody else may have way more second and third place votes and actually end up with more of the share of the votes like or with a better in a better position and now back to kevin what has emerged is a whole new range of independents and those independents the ones who were successful were a group who have been identified as teal independents because of their uh, the color of of their um or their their candidates um and uh, they probably picked up six seats but they've won all those seats from the government and they've won traditionally safe seats what we call blue ribbon seats from uh, from the conservatives they um they uh campaigned on the environment on anti-corruption and a, especially a range of gender issues and in fact all of them are uh women at this stage that have been elected and it's been a major shock to the uh conservatives um so that's what's happened I'm happy to give some more context to how the Labor Party uh, fits into all of that. Yes, please. That would be helpful. Okay. Now the Labor Party is, it's, you know, it's a traditional uh, party similar to the British Party, progressive, social democratic. It's introduced things like universal health care and most of the major changes of the last hundred plus years. Uh, it was built on the trade unions. The um, membership of the unions of course has shrunk because of the change in uh, industries in australia and also there's been an upwardly mobile population with increased wealth and education uh and labor has in recent years had threats from the left such as the greens who held one house of representative seat but probably will win four this time which is a big increase and the greens also have uh, some senators as well um but the big story of the election is the uh, the independents who ran very much on climate as their issue so that's that's probably a good sign then but um i don't wonder how effective they might actually end up being unless they king makers or something like that so could you i mean you do cover the environment for us a lot uh, so could yep. you tell us tell me a bit about uh, how this could pan out like the best case the worst case yeah that they were not the first community based uh women to win as independents and they they have led the way and although they couldn't actually change legislation or you know in get a legislation through the parliament they introduced things that uh, were very influential 
and uh, showed examples of what could be done, such as in the area of uh, having an anti-corruption commission and a range of other areas. Um, and they have been re-elected, a couple of them. So um, it shows that they, they have a base, continuing base. Even if they're, they're not in a, some kind of coalition, the independents are going to be very influential because they will set a lot of the agenda. And what do you um, think that agenda is going to look like? Well, a lot of it will be um, about the environment and climate. Uh, quite a lot of it will have to do with gender-related issues, such as um, you know, sexual violence, harassment in the workplace, and representation of women in, in places such as uh, you know, board rooms and other places, and also in parliament. What kind of environmental issues would it be? I mean, mining? Well, the, the big ones in Australia, uh, apart from climate, are uh, things such as the future of the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. Is a big one. Yeah. Uh, gas, as distinct from coal, things such as uh, coal seam gas and fracking, which is a, a, uh, an area where the environmentalists and the farmers who traditionally vote conservative uh, come together. And I have written about that in recent times. Um, it doesn't mean they necessarily vote for the Labor Party or the Greens, <laughs> but they find common ground. They do find common ground, yeah. Yeah. Um, Endangered species, certainly, both um, animals and uh, plants, but particularly animals. Um, water quality. That's a big, a big one. Continuing yeah. debate about our big water, uh, our big rivers, the uh, Murray and Darling uh, catchment, where there's fights between irrigators and environmentalists, essentially. Okay, so plenty of work ahead for the independent candidates and hopefully the Labour government as well. Yeah. Yeah. I should add that there was there is a con another part to the election which is really important, and that was COVID. Yeah. The, the, the various states had different ways of dealing with it, but they often closed their borders. For example, in Western Australia, their border was closed to other Australians for up to two years. That's and you would think that that would not be popular, but in fact, the Western Australian Labor Party now holds 52, no, 53 or 56 six seats in their lower house after the last election. So it was incredibly popular. Wow. And, and the Labor Party had a 10% swing to them in Western Australia in this federal election. My goodness. Which, which is, uh, was very much an anti-federal government, anti-Scott uh, Morrison vote because of his attitudes towards uh, Western Australia and the, the way they dealt with COVID. Wow. So COVID has been a you would You well. would expect it to be very much an issue uh, on the voting platforms of all the elections that are happening now. But oddly enough, um, I don't know, at least it doesn't seem to be play playing out in India at all. So, 
that's just how it tends to happen. Okay, so um, Kevin, thank you for making the time to talk to me. Fine, it's always good. I'll be writing something. And that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to the Global Voices Podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. Global Voices is an international, multilingual, primarily volunteer community of writers, translators and academics, and human rights activists. Our multilingual newsroom team reports on people whose voices and experiences are rarely seen in the mainstream media. To find out more, go to globalvoices.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. The music in this podcast is from the track Voyage by Nick Markton from our extended Global Voices community.